Hello and welcome to Elevating Founders, the podcast for early stage founders to hear the stories behind the change makers and disruptors in the tech sector who are responsible for tackling the world's biggest challenges. Brought to you by London Tech Week and hosted by myself, Sina Sadzada. This week, I'm joined by Ira Aurelia Key, CEO of Sunflower Relief. A serial founder prior to Sunflower Relief, she founded Zamna. Even earlier in her journey, Ira co-founded three other companies across multiple verticals, and she's received many awards for her work, including as UK BAA Best Investment in Disruptive Tech, plus Best Investment in Female Founder, Founders Forum and Accelerate Her Rising Star, Pitch at Palace winner on Big Data, Intelligence and the Future of Security, and being named in Management Today's 35 Women Under 35. So in this episode, Ira and I discuss her journey focusing on Zamna, a company which uses a blockchain to securely share and verify data between airlines and travel authorities to check passenger identities. We go on to talk about the Sunflower Relief, a new organization dedicated to helping information flow in and out of Ukraine and organizing logistics and supplies into the war zone. Ira was born in Lviv and grew up there until she was nine years old, which enabled her to have a deep local family network and speak all three local languages. The accumulation of Ira's entrepreneurial and life experiences put her in a unique position to aid the transportation of supplies into Ukraine. She's got an incredible story and I can't wait for you guys to listen to this. So without further ado, let's jump straight in. Hi, Ira. How are you? Very good. Thanks, Dina. Good to be here. Welcome to the podcast. It's been, yeah, we've been like, had this in the schedule for a while. So I'm really glad to have you on the podcast. And we've got so much to cover. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. So really, really grateful that you're on the podcast. I think like how we usually like jump in is how have the last like 12 months been for you? Uh, pretty hellish, if I'm honest. I mean, anyone who's got any connection to Ukraine or Ukrainians or any family that's even indirectly linked what's happening or any colleagues would have had a shock on the 24th of February this year um, and I think following kind of Brexit following Covid the last thing we needed is Brexit Covid war <laughs> so anyone who says that they've had a perfect 12 months probably isn't being entirely honest and I know many people were affected by what was happening not only if they like me had immediate family on the ground in Ukraine but simply if they knew somebody. I mean, this is in Europe. This is unprecedented. Um, and it's also very, very personal for people. So um, I wear two hats. Um, firstly, by way of intro, I am the CEO of this company here, Zamna Technologies. And we've had a great year um, with our airline software to validate passenger identity and to help airlines reduce their number of checks from 40% upwards, which is huge given the airports are busy now. But also my role as CEO of Zamna really helped me when I first started Sunflower Relief, which I'm also serving as CEO of. This is a humanitarian aid relief agency that focuses on Ukrainians that cannot access foreign aid or foreign borders. Um, much as here in the UK, we're supporting people who perhaps have escaped the war and have come across the border. If you can't afford to do so, or for whatever reason, you're just not able to create that move for yourself or for your family, um, then we support you, we bring aid to you. And so in the early days, it was a bizarre kind of combination of WhatsApps and emails. And at one point we were diverting a plane throughout Latin America to bring some aid shipments over from the US to Ukraine. It was um, all blowing up pretty much. So the last 12 months have been emotional, very, very upsetting and sad, but also extremely productive because I knew nothing about aid when I started. 
And we now obviously run both organizations and I've learned that, yep, I can be a CEO for two companies on top of everything else. It's no biggie. The same as always, scaling people in process, which is what a good CEO does in tech as well. Yeah, 100%. And we'll definitely like go on and, and talk a bit more detail about uh, the Sunflower, Sunflower Relief because it's an amazing objective that you guys did. So how did your, like, I guess, tell us more about Xamna before we move on to that. So Xamna Technologies started off with a lot of academic research. I, I like to joke that I'm actually a failed academic. My stepfather still claims that he's the oldest professor serving at Oxford University. We think someone's a year older, but we don't tell him. So I grew up in a very academic family and I actually co-authored the first handful of patterns, I'd say. I don't remember how many now, um, which Xamna Tech is now based on. But ultimately, I knew that I didn't want to go into academia. I wanted to see technology being applied to solve very meaningful problems. And to me, aviation and global identity for travel specifically is something that no one's solved yet. So many people, especially during COVID, in the industry tried to put your identity on an app. I mean, all of us were told at one point, download an app, put your identity in it. The airline will scan something, it'll work. The truth is the airline doesn't care what apps you have. They still force you to bring your passport because it doesn't work to digitize the passport and digitize your identity. It doesn't work for travel. It might work for brilliant other use cases, but in travel it has failed definitively to try and digitize identity. So at Zamna, we've created software that we give the airlines to use to create jacks in the background to validate your identity in the background. And you as a passenger have no idea uh, what they're doing. Quite frankly, you don't care as long as it's legal and brilliant under GDPR, which Xamna is. What you want to have is seamless travel. And so that's what Xamna is doing. We've recently announced not only British Airways have re-signed our contract, but also a first client in North America, WestJet in Canada. And we are about to launch our Latin American partner airline. And we have recently announced a partnership with ARCO, the Arab Air Carriers Organization, which is 30 odd airlines in the Middle East. Um, of course, for some airlines, you can imagine the challenge is bigger than for others. So one of our Middle Eastern clients has over 200 nationalities they deal with every day. That's very challenging. For WestJet, for example, the regulatory element of getting your data right for the US bound flights and for the UK bound flights was really important. And we actually reduced um, their operations in airport by 40% in the first week that we ran Xamna software. So that's not only saving a lot of money, yeah, it's reducing their risk of having an inadmissible passenger or flying someone to a country where they're not meant to fly them to because the fines wipe out a lot of their profits. So Zamna's had a great year. I can't say the same about Zamna's CEO or my Ukrainian family, but Zamna's finally now, after two years of hell and COVID, has recovered really strongly. And if you remember, you know, rules were changing like every day at one point. You can travel here, but from 4 p.m. tomorrow, you can't do this. So all of that schizophrenic movement during COVID has settled down now and the travel industry is recovering as well. And Zaman's part of that story, so it's really exciting. I'm I'm personally in the like crypto NFT space and I love when I see actual, you know, good use cases within, you know, blockchain being used to solve some pretty cool problems. Mm. I've seen that you guys do it as well. So how does that whole process work? Because I know a lot of people are like, they use blockchain as a buzzword within their businesses. Massively. But how... Yeah, so so how how do you guys use it to actually solve this issue? Well, first of all, we don't touch crypto. <laughs> Let's just be very clear about that. Um, second of all, blockchain is just a tool. I mean, you'll know that it's a technology as old as 30-odd years old. 
Um, and actually, it just was lying there on the shelf until somebody discovered the use case for it, which initially was crypto. And Bitcoin was the first well-known way to exchange value. Um, it's interesting you mentioned NFTs and kind of art and blockchain. I'm still really long on it, but I think we're so early, we still don't have a clear path of connecting value of something like art on a blockchain to the real world. Because if you have an argument over your NFTs and I say, I own it, and you say, you own it, the end result is we both have to go to a normal court of humans presiding over a legal system that is very much centralized. So the law and the ability to follow through on those digital contracts has not quite developed yet itself to be able to reflect that in the real world. So yeah, blockchain definitely sometimes is a solution looking for a problem. And for us, it was the opposite. We needed something that was very, very good at data management, expiring data. So for example, your passport's not valid forever. Blockchain's great for time stamping, as you'll know, is great for data management in a secure, decentralized way. And so we use blockchain. In fact, in fact we use multiple chains at the core of Xamarin's technology. But if tomorrow a better tool comes along for managing time-sensitive, personalized, decentralized data, we will use that. It's incidental that we use blockchain. I hope that answers your question. I think I think that's a, that's a wonderful answer because it, it highlights the fact that you don't, yeah, what you basically said, you're, you don't have to use the tool and find a problem for it to solve. The problem is already right. there and that's just one tool and one solution that you can use to aid right. that. If you can do it in a web two or like a not using blockchain and it's in a more efficient in that way, like less less expensive, then why not? I think a lot of people like look for the problem that blockchain can solve yeah. uh, when it should be the other way around, which is basically what you just it's said. It's a bit of a buzzword, bingo, isn't it? And it would be nice if you could solve everything. But the truth is, again, I think where you find really good use cases is where it cuts out repeated processes, which with document checks we do at Damner, cuts out some sort of middleman or the ability to share data is difficult. Then a decentralized data storage is definitely helpful because it can connect data across silos as it is in the aviation industry. But in most cases, Web2 solutions, you rightly said, are probably good enough and also less disruptive for existing organizations and their legacy systems. Very quickly, though, what, so what other processes do you think blockchain, so people listening, like more generally, mm -hmm. what processes do you think that blockchain technology can make more efficient and solve existing problems in the next sort of five years? I'm really long on anything to do with provenance. So where you have to track something from A to B which is um, already being used in things like supply chains, logistics. I'm also really long on something I think British Columbia government did really effectively. They put uh, ledgers of data ownership to do with land, specific rights assigned to land ownership on a blockchain sort of version of a decentralized ledger, but it was still controlled by the BC government. So it's almost the data management part was decentralized, but the ownership and control and ultimately the decisions or any dispute arrangement would still go to the central government of British Columbia. Um, I'm also really, as I said earlier, I'm long on art on blockchain in terms of actually the provenance of an artwork. Did it go from A to B and the owner was CDXY? I do think that it's also something that we will see more and more, more used in travel. I think travel as an industry is so super siloed and there are repeated data sets such as the international travel document your passport that have to be shared across the value chain of hotels airports car rentals why are you presenting the same data over and over and over again and it's very much in xamarin technologies roadmap to make sure that you as cena can come in you do it once and it gets persisted over these different touch points without revealing any of the underlying sensitive data i think blockchain is a fantastic tool to kind of share data without sharing almost, if of course the business case calls for it. So how did your experience with Xamna and all this stuff that you just talked about, how did that 
end up like helping you because yeah helping you transport supplies to ukraine when with, with this crisis i wish i could say we have this great decentralized way of managing data and all of our aid is tracked on a blockchain do you know what aid is so not sexy it is the most low-tech stuff ever because we have to work with our recipients as the common denominator and the people who we're helping are either too old or too young or too unwell to go and fight for their country so your kind of end user is a burner phone holding sort of grandma who's probably in her 70s or 80s in charge of her grandchildren and a bunch of neighbors grandchildren both of whose parents have gone off to the war and so um you know the the tech side has been kind of the opposite of what you'd expect it's very much a lot of uh, coding using basic formulas on spreadsheets a lot of database management and a lot of very manual phone calls to do what we do first of all, which is verifying the needs in Ukraine. Let me just touch on this very quickly because I think, given that I'm obsessed with trust and privacy and data, what was really clear to me in the early days of the war is that everyone was really wholeheartedly kind of doing these donation drives and wanting to collect some sort of support for people who overnight lost everything and were in a horrible situation. But then what happened was, you know, oh, we've got all this aid and we kind of hope it gets to someone who needs it. And a bunch of this aid was dumped at the border, wasn't really needed. And people didn't check that this was actually necessary. Just because you give something you no longer need doesn't mean it finds the right recipient. So we flipped the model. That happens quite a lot, actually, not just it's been, it's been happening for years across different countries. That's, Giving that's is a broken. big problem. <laughs> Giving yeah. is really broken. And, yeah. and you know what? It's also a shame because people's desire to give and to support is then not really capitalized on to the end point. Like if you could show everyone that gave something, this is where it ended up with who and what is doing, it would encourage such a beautifully positive loop of I want to give again, that I believe giving could be revolutionized by doing it in a different way. So we started with really verifying the end receivers, making sure that these are high integrity, local NGOs and individuals, organizations that we work with on the ground. A lot of it's super manual. I mean. At one point, I asked my grandmother to go and film. She's got a cool phone with a camera, really old one, one of those flip ones, if you remember. But she did a video of somebody who was claiming on Facebook to be helping pensioners. And indeed, they were. So at this point, you don't care what their identity is. If they're doing something good in their community, you want to support them and foster that relationship. So you're talking about basics, you know, cooking oil, flour, tinned food, not even bread. It's, it's ingredients to make bread and to bake things. And so we start with the needs and the organizations locally in Ukraine. We have over 200 volunteers inside Ukraine who will go and locally verify what is actually happening. Is this person delivering aid? Is this very brave driver going into his local community because these are his former teachers, neighbors, school friends, family? You know, recently, the bombings we started in Ukraine um, with a vengeance after the bridge was blown up, if you were following the war news. And um, I believe the International Cross and maybe a number of other wonderful, wonderful agencies had to say, look, it's just too dangerous. We have to pull out operations out of Ukraine. This is where we differ because our volunteers already serve that local community. The last thing they want to do is pull out. So we bring the foreign aid to them and we match what they need with what is actually required on the ground. That's the better way of doing things, as you said, because the need, the want to give is there. That's across the world. And it's been there. It's been there for no the economic climate or anything like that it really like warms your heart as to, as to how like willing you are to give but the there's so many layers involved with actually giving donating food or or money or whatever that you don't actually know if it's ending up to the people that you want it to go up 
go to because of logistics, because of corruption. There's so many different things. And how demoralizing, how demoralizing is yeah, it? Yeah, when you're no. literally, I, I used to joke that aid is a little bit like seed stage investment. You pour your money down a black drain and you hope that something comes out of this black hole that's beautiful and kind of positive and builds on what you've given them. But ultimately, the lack of that closed loop is really also what we're fighting. It's kind of aid in, info out is the sunflower mantra. And again, this is very much building on my pro kind of processes and practices out of Zamna. All of the operations of Sunflower are taking the structure that I built at Zamna and creating that kind of case management, data management. We've done over 800 cases now to date. That's an awful lot for people where, you know, there's only two of us full time and there's so many, so many volunteers who also have no idea how to do it. They want to do it, but they don't know how. And so scaling people and process has been the number one thing I took from Zamna and pushed so it straight how, how did it start though? Because you started, it was just a fundraising page at right. first, right? <laughs> right. It was like a personal please give to support people. Um, it started by my realizing that the national banks weren't reliable, actually. If you remember at the start of the war, banks completely shut down for like 10 days because of pure panic and instability and vulnerability and security. And I remember posting on my Facebook in a public post, you know, here's what I can help with, you know, one this, two this, logistics, aid, getting out of the country, any support for you as a refugee. And then number 10 was like, just use me as your bank. If you're in Ukraine, you need to do anything or pay for stuff or find something, just use me as your bank. And I just exhausted all of my own financial resources. But my uh, lead investors in Zamna are um, Local Globe. So Remus Brett is the partner at Local Globe, who's been on my board for three years. And then, of course, his um, his partner is Saul Klein and his father, Robin Klein. And they came to me saying, look, we will put some money to operationalize this era helping Ukrainians. Let's build an operation out of it. And because we'd had that trust, they uh, took some capital out of Phoenix Court Works Limited, which is um, a bunch of money that they can deploy into charitable and non-profit causes like Sunflower Relief. And they helped me do everything from job postings to creating kind of free accounts with all sorts of things to incorporating Sunflower Relief, dealing with lawyers, accountants, all of the stuff that needs to happen that you as a founder really know is important but is distracting you from that ultimately vision and goal that you're doing. They took care of all of it. They gave me legal support, PR support, you name it. And that's how Sunflower Relief was born. And Remus is actually my co-founder and co-CEO at Sunflower Relief. Do you think Do you think venture capital firms are like, I guess, more willing to give in situations like this compared to say bigger corporates? I wouldn't discount either. I just think it comes back to high integrity giving, right? Who are you giving and where is it going and how do you check? We send feedback to every single case sponsor. So um, a lot of them remain very humble and very anonymous, but uh, a fairly significant venture farm in London sponsored not one, not two, but three cases. And they've had rich media, photos, videos, feedback from the ultimately end recipients of the aid that they enabled to happen. So it feels like if you were to fix that pouring money down a drain sort of feeling, then people with less money or more money or institutional donors like corporates who also support Sunflower Relief, like VCs, you know, we, we give them cases. We build a case for investment. It's like raising money for anything else. You have to explain why you're better because everyone's competing for attention, especially with corporate social responsibility programs. And we explain why we're great, why what we do has real impact and why the people we serve are the most underserved segment. 
because a lot of the giving has also focused on refugees coming out of the country. We believe if you can afford to do that, and by the way, last time I checked, a seat on a in a car to get out to the border was something like 4,000 euros. For your average Ukrainian making 12 pounds a day, that might as well be 500,000. So it's it's really, it's quite horrible what's happening, right? Profiteering is happening. It's not the most straightforward uh, demographic to operate in. But if you have this trusted local network, you speak all three local languages like myself and my team do, you can then assure them that while we're going into the war zone with our aid, we are actually doing what we say we're doing. That's exactly what it says on the tin. And then they're more encouraged because quite frankly, everyone wants their donation to make an impact and make real, tangible, meaningful change for the people they're helping rather than just, oh yes, it went somewhere. Quite frankly, I don't think that's good enough. I think giving is very, very broken because of that feeling that you and I very much share from our giving as well. Yeah, 100%. I completely agree with you. So walk walk me through it. So when the supplies arrive in Ukraine, how do you ensure that it gets to that, that person or that sort of like group of people, that community on the ground? It's very, very simple. You have to start with those people and then they will make sure that they will either go and meet the shipment or a reliable person takes the shipment, puts it on a train, which we had happened once, and it goes all the way through. So I'll give you an example that's really specific. You know, we work with hospitals, with orphanages, with kind of birthing units that, you know, people haven't stopped having babies just because the war has come. They haven't stopped being sick or needing treatment. And um, a lot of the time, my contacts are either the NGOs that already work with them. So, for example, there's one called Healthy Future Ukraine, which we work with, who we know and whose hospitals we've already built relations with. We've got a network of 11 orphanages who suddenly had to put all their children underground, which was horrible. And, you know, in one kind of children's cot, they had seven babies across it, not just one, the way normal people would. And, and we were trying to support them as well. And very much uh, half of the time, number one, you have to ask, what do you need? So um, some of the refugee internal refugee centers in Ukraine who partnered with these orphanages, um, they're now overflowing into local schools because there's no spaces in the orphanages. And they had a huge shipment of baby formula. Great. But what the donor forgot to ask is, what else do you need? And the answer was, well, actually, when mothers are escaping with babies from like a bombed building, they don't think, I'll just grab all my baby bottles and sterilizing equipment. They needed baby bottles. So because they're incentivized in getting that stuff, into their, their process and into their environment, they'll tell you, you know, this is the driver we use or this is somebody who can help us and you organize it that way. So if you start with the end in mind and you've already agreed and you know what, what the destination is, it'll get there. It's like you and I going for a drive and saying, oh, we'll go somewhere as opposed to going, well, we're going there. You know, the goal and the end point really is that critical. And it's that simple. See, when when you talk through that, that makes a ton of sense to me. So like, I don't. this might be a slightly loaded question. So just, I guess, answer how you want. But what do you think, I guess, existing charities and the charities that have been around for, for decades, what have they been doing wrong, I guess, when it comes to, because this isn't the first war in the world, right? This is, this is one, it's the latest one, but it's the first one. So what have they been, yeah, what's, what's been the pitfalls? Honestly, it's just a really, really hard job. And what we have to recognize is that there is so much phenomenal charity work being done by the established players. It's just, I believe that the type of locations where these charities have been more impactful is probably not like Ukraine. Here's why. Ukraine didn't need any aid until recently. So there is no network, no established processes, no kind of people on the ground who have been doing it for years, no no established anything. 
Number two, the language barrier means that suddenly, for example, if you're an established charity, you might need to recruit somebody speaking that language, reading that language, or drivers who can navigate roads that have been bombed and the labels on the roads are not in even Latin letters, let alone English language. So I think it's really unfair to say they've been doing something wrong. It's just initially the response to the conflict that came from Sunflower Relief could be much faster and more immediate because these are people living in our homes. You know, my father is there on the ground. My sister is there. Both my grandparents are there. My aunties and uncles are there. My school friends. I left when I was nine, but of course I've kept in touch with them. And Facebook's made it possible ever more, even in the last kind of 10 years, more than ever. So the immediacy of the response, we were really, really effective at. When you look at places with kind of more long-term aid, I think that's where Sunflower Relief can't really compete, right? You need big budgets, you need big marketing machines or fundraising for developmental aid almost, rather than just instant conflict response. And even then, you know, deploying funds uh, to a conflict is something that these brilliant charities have done their whole life, right? This is the, I'm not a career aid worker and god knows i couldn't be i find it emotionally draining and really upsetting and horribly exhausting as does a lot of my team i've had to force some of them to take time off and you know we responded to this as a call from the inside of our hearts it's it's not like a choice it was it was a compelling obsession to try and do something because you feel so powerless in the conflict and you can't stop the war but you can do what's in your control and you feel a little bit like okay i can sleep at night a bit more um so i don't think i don't think it's just just you know is it us versus them i think there's space and a and a role for everyone but i think that loop of being able to document where things end up it's it's not new you know i i support action aid for example and i know the exact girl in afghanistan who i support and i you know my daughters get letters from her and we get pictures of her so i know that there's we're not the first ones to do it it's just we did it really fast yeah when the, when the provenance is there yeah, yeah it, it becomes fast, a lot more effective and we did it very localized and we did it in three local languages as well so we could just move faster into that area that's what i'd say our advantage is still is today because we just have such a personal connection to the land well i guess my last question before we jump into the quick fire ones is how can people get involved with the sunflower relief sure it's sunflowerrelief.org forward slash support please, please consider supporting us because we currently have a winter is coming campaign. Um, I'm sure lots of other charities are asking you for support and donations at this time of the year. I would point out this is the first Christmas most Ukrainian children who are left in Ukraine are facing without their parents. And we don't need much. In fact, I learned recently that the average UK family spends 3,000 a month just to live. But for just 100 a month, we could support a family for six months, all the way through the winter months. And this is basics like candlelight because there's no electricity, tiny bit of wood for your heater and your uh, and boiling water. Uh, again, basics like cooking oil, flour, dry rice, pasta. These are not extravagant things that we need. Um, I also learned the other day that 20 pounds is the average size of the Starbucks order. But for 20 pounds, we could support that same family for a whole month. And so we currently work with very local NGOs right in the eastern side where the conflict is still very much going on. And when you see a map of Ukraine and you see like just a little bit on the right is in red now, not the whole map is in red. Um, just bear in mind that that size, well, one fifth of Ukraine is the size of the whole of England, Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland combined. So it's still a huge amount of people really affected. A lot of them simply cannot leave. They can't afford to. 
they, they, they can't get out. It's, you know, a ticket abroad is impossible to get. And if you have somebody too frail to move to sick, if you're supporting somebody else, you're not going to be able to leave. So it's not that easy. So what we're asking is that people go to sunflowerrelief.org forward slash support and tell us how and why and where, if they can get involved in our winter campaign, whether it's simply financial donations, whether they want to help spread the word about the winter campaign, because we don't have a marketing team, we're a small team of operators, or whether they've got an idea of how to help us partner with, as you said, corporates or venture capital, or even PE houses. We're looking to private equity increasingly, not only VC, to make sure that we can access those with the resources to really make a difference on the ground. And it takes as little as £100 for six months for a whole family to survive through this winter. So I really hope people can get in touch or get in touch with me on my Zamna email, ira at zamna.com. So I-R-R-A at zamna.com. And I will personally reply to every single message. And all that all that stuff will be in our description. So if you guys want to check it out right now, then then go ahead while, while we're doing the quick fire questions. Thank you so much for that, um, Ira. So yeah, to, to wrap up the podcast, let's jump into the quick fire questions. The first one, if you go to the pub with any entrepreneur, would you choose i know you didn't like the word pub so you can change it to any sort of surrounding no, no, i i love a pub but the person i would take out for a drink is a fantastically entrepreneurial brilliant human being called abdul wahab tafaha he's the secretary general of arco the arab air carriers organization uh, he's based in beirut and uh, i know he loves uh, certain types of food and i think a pub will just probably not not be enough for our love of gastronomy, our shared love of food, but he is the most interesting human I met. I mean, Beirut itself and Lebanon as a country have had such a checkered history that a lot of people won't even know about. And his ability to build momentum, to advise, you know, at a CEO level, to create meaningful connections and to just create something from nothing, which is a true definition of an innovator. I love that because it's always, always coupled with the most hilarious stories. Um, and I, I think if somebody you work with also makes you laugh your head off and you just enjoy their company, uh, you know, I, I always look forward to it. So I would take him to a very cool little Lebanese place. We'd get some really basic food, eat it with our hands probably, I would have the biggest laugh while probably thinking of how to help the world be a better place through both Sunflower and Zamna. He's been a huge supporter and truly, yeah, an innovator. So that's the entrepreneur I'd, I'd take out. Okay, fantastic. I love Lebanese food as well. It's a good choice. It's changing, changing up the pub. <laughs> uh, secondly, what's a startup you're loving at the moment and why? Do you know what? I was thinking this and I, I'm going to feel a little bit cheeky in my answer. So I don't know if you've been to Malaysia, anywhere in Asia. So there is a really cool, super app it's actually called a super app and it's the air asia super app but before you dismiss this as an airline product just hear hear what you can do with it you can order food you can order a taxi you can i think access hotels and you can get flights on it as well all in one super app and it's created by a brilliant man who i had the pleasure of meeting many many months ago in london he's called tony fernandez and I am loving what he's doing because everyone in travel is talking about connected travel. Even you and I mentioned it before, you know, it couldn't be cool to do it. He's actually executing on it with a complete startup mindset. You know, quick tests, quick loops, try this, do it regionally. Does it work? Yes, it does. Let's roll it out. His team are phenomenal. 
And I think I can only compare him to somebody like Branson here in the UK. I absolutely am loving what he's doing. He's also recently added to his personal life. He's got a new startup, an extra, he's got a little baby girl. And as someone with four kids like myself, I look at him and I think, okay, you're really doing it all. And I think I have huge respect for the fact that a lot of people who do the talk uh, look at him and he's genuinely walking the walk. So I'm loving what he's doing with the AirAsia Super app. Super cool. I wish it was here. That sounds phenomenal. I will definitely check that out. I've never heard of it. And last question before we wrap up, fill in the blank. To be a founder, you must be. Oh, it's a good one. It's a good way to wrap up the podcast. Self-aware. That's a very good answer. That's a very good answer. I, I think if you're not self-aware, then you can't be a true, truly effective leader. Um, there's a lot of ego in the startup world, as I'm sure you'll experience. Um, and some of it is kind of required. Like you have to be in, a, in your own little bubble of, no, no, I will do this. And like it serves you in some ways to have your yourself focused in that way. But I believe self-awareness is the answer to most human problems and I also believe the quality of our communication comes from self-awareness and being able to understand the viewpoints of others not just our own um, and I also believe the quality of our communication determines the quality of our relationships so when I'm building any sort of whether it's a product or process or, or a new connection all of that comes down to how well as a founder I can communicate in whatever language with whoever's in front of me so yeah to be a founder, you need to be self-aware. That's a wonderful answer. And we've not actually had that answer before. So that thank you for that. that that's a very good answer. So we're, we're going to wrap up the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to wrap up the podcast there. All the links that you just mentioned before we, before the quick fire questions will, will be in the description. So for you guys that want to help out Sunflower Relief, and please do, you can check out all the links there. And if you want to email Ira, then yeah, her email will be in the description as well. So Ira, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I'm sure we'll speak very soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, you. That is it for this week's episode of Elevating Founders. So the question I have for you is, have you subscribed to the podcast yet? If not, now is the time. We've got some fantastic episodes lined up for you this series, so keep an eye out. We'll be back with a new episode on the 10th of January. In the meantime, why don't you catch up on previous episodes? So thank you so much for listening and see you next time.